if somebody took one of these one of these foreign government-sponsored trips, say in January of 2011, we still wouldn't have any disclosure of it. And and one other point there is these trips are also taken uh, by junior staffers on the Hill, and they don't file these forms at all. So in in the case of junior staffers, there's actually zero disclosure. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston in the great state of Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from 3,000 miles away on the other coast in beautiful Southern California, where, Bob, we expect it to hit 100 degrees this weekend. Spring has arrived. Yeah, well, it's the same is true here, Craig. I, you probably heard about the Boston Marathon this week with people dropping and, and getting rushed off to hospitals. It's, it's really hot here for, for this time of year. But. And same for us. Well, I read a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, I know you read a couple of blogs. Right. I read a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, which is a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, and Firm Manager by LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Craig, there's a pretty long list of restrictions and requirements on length, purpose, cost, itinerary, and more for members of Congress and their staffers who travel at the expense of private organizations. And there is one big and at the same time little-known loophole that allows politicians and staffers to travel with very few restrictions and virtually no accountability. Is this legal? Is it ethical? Well, we're going to find out right now on Lawyer to Lawyer. Helping us uh, do that today are, are two guests uh, with insight on this topic. Uh, first, uh, first off uh, is Justin Elliott. Justin Elliott is a reporter for ProPublica.com. A recent article uh, of his entitled Law Shrouds Details of Congressional Trips Abroad, uh, posted in ProPublica.org. I, I said .com before it's .org. Uh, he's been investigating this story for a while, uh, and he's really provided a, a fascinating uh, insight into uh, uh, these uh, kind of a, a big loophole in this law. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Justin. Good to be here. And Bob also joining us is Professor of Law Kathleen Clark from Washington University in St. Louis. Kathleen is an expert on anti-corruption standards for current and former government employees, as well as government contractor personnel. She's the associate reporter for the American Law Institute's Principles of Governing Ethics, drafting a treatise on anti-corruption standards, and recently served as special counsel to the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, writing an ethics manual for the district's 32,000 employees and created ethics training programs, gave advice on ethics, and was blowing in open government laws. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kathleen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, Justin, let's get a little bit of history on the congressional travel debate. Um, what were the rules before the Jack Abramoff scandal? Well, they were they were a lot they were a lot lighter than they are now. I mean, there's um, people probably remember there's a famous picture of uh, Abramoff. Um, at a, a Scottish golf course, St Andrews, um, grinning with a group of men, one of whom was uh, one of whom was a federal employee, another of whom was a member of Congress, Bob Nay from Ohio, who later was convicted on, on charges related to accepting gifts, including 
luxury travel from Jack Abramoff in exchange for um, you know using his using his office to to do favors for Abramoff's uh, clients. Um, after that scandal in the mid 2000s, Congress passed a law called the uh, Honest Leadership and Open Government Act. That was in 2007, in which they um, I mean included a whole slew of measures, but but a lot of it focused on um, uh, rules restricting what sort of trips members of Congress and staff could take and, and, and what sort of disclosures, public disclosures had to be made after those trips. Well, we, we want to talk a lot more about the rules and they've, they develop, how they've developed, but I, I wanted to kind of turn our focus quick to uh, where we are now with, with your recent reporting uh, and, and then get some, uh, some thoughts from Kathleen as well on this. But, but give, us a, give, give us a synopsis of, of what you found in, in your article uh, again, entitled Law Shroud's Details of Con- Congressional Trips Abroad. Sure. So uh, it, it's sort of you have to set up a contrast to really fully understand this. So, I mean, c- members of Congress and, and, their, and Hill staffers take an, a, a sort of several different categories of trips. There's official congressional delegations, and those are usually reported by uh, the committees in the congressional record. And there's some information available on those, like how much they cost. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's reported fairly promptly. Um, what the rules are tightest for are privately sponsored travel. So that's like if, if some organization sponsors a, a member's trip abroad. And in, in, when you take those trips, you have to get pre-approval from either the House or, or Senate Ethics Committee. Um, you have to justify the purpose as being related to your official duties. Um, if the organization sponsoring the trip employs lobbyists, there's, uh, I believe the trip can only last for one, they can only pay for one night's lodging. Uh, if they don't employ lobbyists, they can they can pay for I, I believe up to seven days lodging, and then when you get back, you have to uh, I believe within a few weeks um, you have to file a uh, lengthy disclosure form that becomes public shortly after, which includes um, an hourly itinerary, um, you know things like who you met with, where you went, um, detailed cost information, and you know what, whether your family members went, and so on. Um, the, the type of trip, uh, the, the loophole you referred to, if you want to call it that, I mean, you could also call it sort of just an exception in the law. These are trips that are paid for by foreign governments, um, and, it, and they're allowed under an old law that was, it was, it was enacted in 1961 called the Mutual Educational and Cultural Exchange Act, which they refer to as MECA for short. Um, and in these trips, you don't, if you're a member or staff are going to any foreign country paid for by that government. You don't have to get pre-approval from the Ethics Committee. You don't have to file uh, virtually no public disclosure of of, uh, who you met with, how much it cost, what the purpose was. Uh, What little public disclosure there is only comes out much later, uh, which we we can talk about the reasons for that. And there's generally just very little transparency around who's going, where they're going, what they're doing, and and so on, because, because of this old law. Well, Kathleen, as we we look into this, what um, what kind of things do you think have uh, caused this scandal and tightening up of uh, activities? Are people not reporting where they're going? Is there are there activities that are occurring that are are illegal? So, so first of all, I, I really want to commend Justin Elliott for his terrific um, article uh, with ProPublica because he does just a terrific job of bringing attention to a problem or an anomaly in the law and the rules and then digging down and, and going in depth on it. Um, and 
what he has found is he's described <clears throat> an exception or a loophole, as you put it, really reflects uh, a more general idea, which is um, many of our ethics laws in general, almost all of them, are responses to scandal. Rather than stepping back and saying, okay, how do we actually need to protect the public from conflicts of interest and ensure that public officials have the public's interest in mind, we have a scandal and then we react to scandal. We put in a layer of regulation. We try to address the specific problem that occurred and then we move on. And what he's describing, this situation, is exactly that sort of thing. We had a problem with privately sponsored travel and the involvement of lobbyists and Congress responded by putting in reforms after the Abramoff scandal, requiring pre-approval, limits uh, on the travel, and also prompt disclosure. And and the, the problem, as he just has identified it, is that rather than looking more generally at the problem of travel, it just looked at privately sponsored travel and didn't address the fact that members of Congress are authorized to accept travel from foreign governments. Um, and so those terrific reforms didn't reach this kind of travel. Um, and now it's really, you know, opening up an opportunity uh, for Congress to take some action, either through regulations or uh, rules or, or, or whatever, particularly to address the, the disclosure issue, uh, whether or not there's prompt, the need really, for prompt disclosure of information about, about these trips. And I, I would I would just add to that quickly. Um, Kathleen's uh, right in her analysis. I I, I I didn't include this in my piece. I don't think, but I I, I spoke with um, one a person in, in an outside uh, watchdog type group that actually worked on the drafting of that 2007 law that tightened um, the the restrictions and disclosure rules surrounding privately sponsored travel. And he told me that that they specifically did not address these Mika um, foreign government. Uh, funded trips because they had not been used by Jack Abramoff. They were not what was in in involved in that in that scandal. Uh, so they weren't seen as sort of a problem that need need to be addressed, and they were sort of seen outside. It's also a program that's to some extent administered by the State Department, so it, it was so, sort of seen as separate, and that's why it wasn't addressed back then. Just just to note that. Well, that, I mean, that's still that kind of substantiates Kathleen's point that rather than take a comprehensive approach to these uh, kinds of problems, they they tend to take a, a band-aid approach, responding to what the particular item in the news happens to be uh, in legislating. But but with respect to these foreign government paid trips, what I mean, what are the what are what are the dangers? What what is the issue here? Is it, is it purely an issue of transparency and disclosure? Is is there a danger uh, underlying the fact uh, that there's a minimal, if any, reporting of these trips? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the answer to that, is, it's subjective, of course. I mean, I'm sure you could find people who would say there there is no problem here. But I mean, the reason the, the reason I got into writing about this is that I, I wrote another story earlier in which I was looking at um, a member of Congress uh, named uh, Annie Falio Mavega, Who's actually the he's he's a non-voting delegate from American Samoa, um, which he, he he basically he doesn't get to vote in full uh, in in the House for for full votes, but he does sit on the House Foreign Relations Committee. He's actually, I believe, the second or third ranking Democrat. He gets full powers in committee and can introduce legislation and so on. Um, and I was looking at his relationship with the government of Bahrain, um, which uh, you know has been involved in. Sort of cracking down on a um, Arab Spring 
protest movement over the last year or so, and and this congressman uh, Falio Mavega from American Samoa has gotten very involved in Bahrain, and and he's actually traveled there twice on these Mika trips that are that are paid for by the government there, and he um, has also been very active defending the the current government there. You know, he's entered several statements into the congressional record, um, sort of attacking the protesters, saying that the media is misreporting the government's human rights record. And so I, I sort of, I did a piece looking looking at this, and uh, it turned out, without getting too much more into the details, that there was, there was a lobbyist involved who was working for a, um, not working for the government of Bahrain, but working for a American Bahrain group that sort of supports the government, that who's also a friend of the congressman. And one of those lobbyists actually went on one of these uh, Mika trips with the congressman to Bahrain. And, you know, there was a, there was a banquet in a four-star hotel and that sort of thing. Um, I, you know, we were able to know about this, not because it was disclosed in any government filings, but because there were some pictures posted on the website by people involved. But, but I mean, that's an example of, of how this, of how this program is being used. I mean, you have a government, in this case, Bahrain, uh, you know, it's an important ally of the United States. Uh, they we sell them weapons, um, so they're 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 very uh, you know they, they want to preserve the relationship with the United States, so they're getting members of Congress and lobbyists involved with the issue to come to come visit. Um, you know they control the itinerary, they control access to who you meet with, and so on. And um, in general, again, it's hard to say how much how much these trips are going on because of the lack of disclosure rules. But that's sort of the situation we're talking about. Whether or not that's a problem is sort of a subjective question. I could actually um, build on what Justin was just talking about. I think his example of that representative from American Samoa is a very powerful um, example. And it illustrates, I think, a much more general issue. And here, I don't think it's just subjective um, that there's a problem here. And let me try to be a bit more specific. We have ethics standards in place because we want to ensure that our elected representatives and other government officials are serving the interests of their constituents and not some other private interest or some other interest, right? They owe duties of loyalty, uh, fiduciary duty to, uh, to, to their constituents, to the general public or the public with, that, that they represent, okay? And to the degree that they can accept gifts or payments from people who have an interest in legislation, we're concerned that they're going to serve the interests of those who pay them rather than those who they are elected to represent. And that's why we have, you know, prohibitions on bribery and limits on gifts, et cetera. That's why the, the Congress adopted restrictions on gifts from lobbyists, et cetera. Um, and, and so in general, right, that's what ethics standards are about. But what we have here is just a, a situation where the government has decided, well, we want people, elected representatives, senators, uh, members of the House, to be able to travel to get, uh, have other non-federal sources pay for that travel, um, which, you know, on the one hand, makes some sense politically because it means the taxpayers aren't paying for them. But what it does is it opens up this question of whether those senators are going to be so grateful or, you know, uh, feel the, they'll have these special relationships with those who give them 
these gifts of travel rather than with their elected representatives. So it really comes back to, you know, what do we need to do to protect the public's interest here? And I, and I would just add to that one other thing. I mean, if I, I think there's another distinction here besides who's paying for it, because I mean, you know, look, in, in none of these cases is the member of Congress, him or herself, paying for it. But if you have the U.S. government um, or congressional committee organizing an official congressional delegation, aside from the fact that the taxpayers are paying for it, you also have presumably the the committee staff are organ- who are organizing the trip are the ones who decide the itinerary. You know, who do you meet with? Do you meet with just pro-government people? Do you meet with opposition people? What do you see? Do you have government minders and so on? So I think the control of the itinerary here is also a very significant issue, given that we're talking about, you know, powerful members of Congress who are creating, who are setting the foreign policy of the country. So Kathleen, what is the relationship of the GSA scandal regarding the party that they had in Las Vegas and the lavish spending and that now it's coming out that the, uh, one of the GSA heads of the department or of the uh, agency has taken trips? How does that play into these disclosure requirements? Um, well, what, what I can say is that the executive branch puts um, significant limits uh, on the ability. Um, in general, the government can't be paying for a spouse's travel, a partner's travel, or anything like that um, in general. Um, and one of the things that goes on here is we allow through these um, two statutes that, or at least one of the statutes, um, the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act, uh, I believe it is, uh, that we allow foreign governments to pay for travel. And I think that uh, may also be the case with regard to some privately uh, funded travel. Um, but I, I think more, more generally, the, the, the point or the parallel um, to the GSA, the current GSA scandal, um, is really comes back to this need for accountability, if, and, and um, including disclosure. So if we decide that despite the conflict of interest that is created by the acceptance of a gift of travel, we think, well, taxpayers won't pay for it, but we really want these members of Congress to be able to, you know, engage in these fact-finding trips, et cetera. One protection we can put in place is prompt disclosure, pre-approval and prompt disclosure. And we don't have that. As Justin has, has identified in his article, we don't have that with regard to foreign governments sponsored travel. And it's, it's ironic because you'd think that we'd want more protection for travel that is sponsored by, by alien nations, right, by foreign governments. And instead, we have, in this way, less protection for the public. Yeah, and I would just, I would just add on the disclosure point. I mean, well, first of all, on the spousal point, actually, w- one of the very few restrictions on this MECA travel, foreign government-sponsored travel, is that spouses are actually not allowed to go. Um, I, I believe, there, as Kathleen mentioned, there is another statute in which perhaps they are. Um, I, I'm, le- I'm less knowledgeable about that, that law. But um, just to give you a sense of, of, of how much of sort of a black box this is, I mean, not only do members of Congress and staff who go on these trips not have to file disclose, any, any sort of disclosure in some cases, and in other cases, very, very little disclosure, um, we don't actually even know uh, all of the programs that they're traveling under. And, and to explain that, this is the program is administered by the State Department. So if you're a foreign government who wants to pay for a member of Congress to come travel to your country, you go to the State Department and you uh, create a memorandum of, memorandum of understanding with the State Department saying, this is what my MECA program is going to be about. This is, this is the sort of activities we're going to engage in. This is the purpose of it. 
and the State Department approves that or, or disapproves it depending uh, based on, you know, the various requirements of the law, which is originally supposed to be all about cultural exchange. Um, now, I, I went to the State Department to ask them, um, you know, for a list of programs, and they, they told me that they have 85 or roughly 85 approved programs with over 50 countries, and they, and they gave me a list of the countries that have approved programs, which we published on, on ProPublica, but they, they declined to give me uh, the actual list of the programs, um, so we don't know uh, what type of programs these are. Uh, we don't even we don't know which which countries are sponsoring which type of programs. They told me to file a freedom of information request for it, which which I have. But you know that means you know we can talk about it again in four or five years. I want to say, Justin, this that was one of the most shocking parts of your article to me. Not not so much that we allow this travel, but that. The both the executive and the legislative branches failed to disclose promptly to you just details of the program. You know, uh, I mean, how can the public control the government if it can't get quick access to basic details on this sort of sort of gift uh, uh, program program? Well, we can, we can follow up more about that in just a second. We have to uh, take a, a short break right now, so stay with us. And uh, when Lawyer to Lawyer returns. Uh, We'll talk more about the Mutual Educational and Cultural Exchange Act. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the role of security in cloud computing. Jack, what about security? Are there any ethical or security-related concerns that need to be addressed with cloud computing? We're starting to see the first ethics opinions come out on cloud computing, and the early proposed ethics opinions like that from the North Carolina State Bar indicate that there are no ethical issues relating to the use of cloud computing in a law firm, but that as with the use of any third-party provider, an appropriate amount of due diligence needs to be undertaken to verify that the provider you're using has implemented an adequate level of security and privacy precautions and is essentially taking due care with your confidential client data. We've been talking to Jack Newton president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments. And best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com slash LTN. 
That's firmmanager.com slash LTN. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Justin Elliott from ProPublica.org and Professor of Law Kathleen Clark from Washington University in St. Louis. Let's continue our discussion. And before the break, we were talking about the disclosure responsibilities to uh, members of the media. Justin, uh, any planned follow-up on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, as I said, I have I have filed a couple of Freedom of Information Act requests, but they, those tend to um, be sort of years-long uh, propositions. Um, another aspect of this that I should make clear is that there is actually one one detail that members of Congress have to disclose, which is if they take one of these trips, they have to put it on something that's called their personal financial disclosure, which is this is an annual document that members of Congress and, and senior Hill staffers, which which um, is a category that, that usually includes people who are uh, who make about one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year or over. So that's usually chiefs of staff or or senior staff on congressional committees. Th- these are all people that have to file this this annual personal financial disclosure, and it lists things like your assets, like what what's uh, you know real estate you own, stock you own, and so on. And there there's a there's a schedule on there where you have to put foreign travel, and you do have to put a line, a single line, if you took. Say if you if you took one of these Mika trips to Bahrain, you would have to put it on, and and it, it literally just says. And I gave an example of one of these in my in my piece. Um, you know, November fifth through tenth, Bahrain Mika trip. That's it. Um, so that's something. But but the you know it doesn't really get us very far because for one thing, these documents are not searchable. They're you know often have are scribbled in hand. There's it's not like there's one place where you can look up all the trips. And for another thing. Uh, they're filed in the in May of the following year, so uh, the, we only have these financial disclosures for the most recent ones are actually covering the year 2010, um, and we will get 2011s in. Well, they're filed in May, and they usually come out about a month later, so in June. Um, so there's a significant delay. I mean, if you if somebody took one of these one of these foreign government sponsored trips, say in January of 2011, we still wouldn't have any disclosure of it. And and one other point there is these trips are also taken uh, by junior staffers on the Hill, and they don't file these forms at all. So in, in the case of junior staffers, there's actually zero disclosure. And I just wanted to reiterate for our listeners that, that Justin's article, of course, is, is on the ProPublica.org website, but also uh, his earlier article about the the delegate from American Samoa, his uh, the, the list of the participating uh, governments, uh, uh, with, with programs under this uh, under this program is there, and, and a lot of other reporting that, that Justin has, has done on that. Uh, and uh, if you search for his name, you can find all that. Kathleen, I wanted to ask you what uh, what what is the what is to be done? Uh, is there should, does there need to be a legislative uh, 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 attempt to address this issue, or is the law fine as it is? I don't believe that the law is fine as it is. Um, I think that the House and the Senate can take action uh, to address the problem that Justin has identified and to require 
um, even if it wants to continue to allow foreign governments to uh, give gifts of travel as, as it has consented to through these two statutes, the Mutual Education and Cultural Exchange Act and the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act. Even if it wants to continue allowing these gifts of travel, Congress, each uh, house could take a lot, do a lot more in ensuring um, that the public has real, meaningful access to the information so that the public can weigh in on whether it thinks its members are doing the right thing by accepting these, these gifts of travel. And, and if, if I could, I, I just want to just really emphasize that this is a much more general problem. Um, just to put it into a little broader perspective, this, this problem of disclosure um, in campaign finance and in government ethics more generally, um, it, it's you know, in the past, we've required disclosures, and they have been based on paper, you know, paper-based rather than electronic, and there are delays, and then in some cases, they're not even on the web. You have to show up in person, and they're not searchable. And what, with respect to these gifts of foreign travel, and more generally with ethics disclosure, what Congress and state and local governments really need to do is make the information available promptly and in a meaningful way. Search, you know, through searchable um, forms rather than just images of, you know, PDFs of the of, of the forms. Um, and and we see Congress doing this now recently with the Stock Act, um, with the recently passed Stock Act, uh, requiring uh, increased ethics disclosure uh, and making that disclosure those disclosures available on the web rather than paper based, uh, where you'd have to essentially uh, go through a process similar to the Freedom of Information Act to get them. And Justin, let's let's get to the ultimate question here that really everybody wants to know, uh, which is, from your review of these reports, are these congressmen really on fact-finding missions, or are they just taking a vacation? Well, I mean, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, I don't have a answer to that, and I'm sure I'm sure I don't have a, a conclusive answer to it, anyways. I mean, I'm sure it varies from from trip to trip. Like, for example, the the one trip that I that I've been able to discern some details of, which was that Congressman Falio Mavega going to Bahrain last um, October. Um, it seemed like it was a mix of, of I mean, there, again, there was this sort of what seemed to be a, a fairly lavish banquet at a four-star four-star hotel, and then, the, but there were also certainly meetings with political officials, which I'm sure was um, equally valuable to the hosts. Um, but I, but, but it's very hard to tell unless, um, unless you know, unless you can get your hands on itineraries or, or photos or that sort of thing, which I'm certainly interested in doing, um, and I am still working on on this whole general story. Um, I, I think you have to kind of assess it on a trip by trip basis. Before we move off, that, I just wanted to, I just wanted to point out on that that one story on on the Bahrain thing was was really fascinating to read because you you found some really interesting connections there. Uh, you know, it's not just the travel to Bahrain, but there are other connections between the delegate and the country of Bahrain. Isn't that right? Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of trace this whole web of connections in which it, it seems like the reason, or or at least one of the reasons that he, he became involved in in sort of uh, being a, a defender of the government of Bahrain in, in, in Congress is that he, he has a friend who's also a lobbyist in Washington for a, a pro, pro-government, uh, pro-Bahrain government group. Uh, the, the lobbyist also happens to be the, uh, the president of the Mormon stake in, uh, Northern Virginia, which the congressman is also a member of. Um, so there's, there's a whole web of connections there, but I mean, to the trips issue, one of the most interesting things about it was that, uh, this lobbyist, or 
he may not be technically a registered lobbyist, but he's a the president of something called the Bahrain American Council, which is effectively a lobbying group, actually attended one of these MECA trips to Bahrain with the congressman. And I should note there were actually two other members of Congress on that same trip. Um, and that's exactly the sort of um, activity that would that would actually be illegal if it was sponsored by a private organization under that post-Abramoff law that we talked about. I mean, you can't you can't go on lengthy trips with uh, with lobbyists. I mean, let alone with lobbyists, even even if they're sponsored by an organization that employs lobbyists. So that really kind of underscores um, how th- this the, the, this one category of foreign sponsored trips are. Um, sort of exist outside of the rules for other types of trips. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, we are at about the end of our time for this program. The discussion has gone by all too too fast, and it's been all very interesting. But before we uh, wrap up, we want to uh, give each of our guests an opportunity to give their closing thoughts uh, on this topic and also to uh, let our listeners know how they can follow up with them if they'd like to do that. So, uh, Justin, I think we may have lost Kathleen, so let's uh, turn to you and get your final thoughts and your contact information, please. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, w- one, one thing that I, I wanted to mention, because it's sort of a, a, a fun constitutional wrinkle here, is there's there's actually a clause in the Constitution that's, I think, known as the Foreign Emol- Emoluments Clause, which specifically bars uh, members of Congress um, from taking uh, gifts from foreign governments unless it is specifically... Um, authorized by Congress. So this is actually one of the two law. this MECA statute of 1961, I believe is one of the two laws in which Congress did carve out this, this explicit uh, authorization for, mem- for, for when U.S. government officials can take gifts from foreign governments, because otherwise it's actually banned by the Constitution if you look, at, look up the Foreign Emoluments Clause. But yeah, my contact information, and I'm certainly interested in anyone's thoughts, or certainly if, you, if they've been involved in any of these MECA trips, in either case, uh, my email address is justin at propublica, which is P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A dot O-R-G. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at, it's my name reversed, Elliot Justin, and that's two L's, two T's, uh, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-J-U-S-T-I-N. All right. Uh, thanks a lot, Kathleen. Uh, we wanted to get your final thoughts, uh, if we could, and your, your contact information. Sure, absolutely. So in terms of a final thought, I think Justin's article really highlights the need for a, a more comprehensive look at ethics rather than a reactive approach to scandal. And I'll say that the American Law Institute's restatement, or rather principles of, of government ethics, is is doing exactly that in, in, in coming up with a treatise on, on government ethics. Um, and my contact information, uh, my email address is Kathleen, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N, and then underscore, and then Clark, C-L-A-R-K, at Mac, M-A-C, dot com. Great. Well, we want to thank you both very much for being on the show today. It's been very enlightening and uh, an awful lot of information. Bob, uh, what are your thoughts on this whole mess? Well, uh, as, as you know uh, from having heard from me over the years, I'm a great advocate of, of government transparency. It's something I work on in my own practice all the time, uh, and uh, so I would love to see uh, reforms made in this area to uh, to uh, require uh, transparency and, and reporting and, and uh, easily accessible reporting, as, as Kathleen uh, has pointed out uh, on this issue. Sounds like a good idea, especially given how much abuse there seems to be. 
Well, we want to, again, Bob, thank our guests and uh, remind our listeners they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center section. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes, and we have a brand new Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your phone. We hope to have an iPhone app shortly. We'll check it out, go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. See you then, Bob. See you then, and thanks to our guests very much. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.